We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentators Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Ross Feingold. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing US lawmakers introducing the draft Taiwan Solidarity Act and the Strategic Competition Act of 2021 with Taiwan clauses passing a committee review in Washington, D.C. The KMT kicking off its referendum promotion campaign. Taipei Mayor Ke Wenzhou touting the need for his Taiwan People's Party to avoid any debate on the Taiwan independence issue. Food delivery drivers here in Taiwan seeking to form a labour union to give them more leverage when they're negotiating for fair pay and a concern about the large numbers of CCTV cameras at a Chinese-owned hot pot restaurant's outlet here in Taiwan. But we'll begin with the Ministry of Transportation and Communications this week getting a new head. And Lin Jialong, of course, stepped down and he was replaced by his former deputy, Wang Guotsai. Now, Lin, of course, had served as Transport Minister from January the 14th, 2019 until Tuesday of this week. But he actually, in fact, succeeded Wang back when he actually became Transport Minister in 2019 because Wong actually used to serve as the acting Transport Minister after U Hong Mo was removed in a cabinet reshuffle in the wake of the DPP's losses in the November 2018 9-in-1 elections. Now, Lin resigned, of course, to take responsibility for the April 2nd deadly train accident in Hualien. And speaking at a handover ceremony, his replacement, Wang Guotsai, announced that his top priority is to be reformed within the Taiwan Railways Administration to ensure that train travel is safe. There we go. Now, according to Wong, he will be pushing for the integration of different departments within the Railways Administration to make lateral communications easier. And he says that Transport Ministry is also reviewing the Railways Administration's financial situation, looking for solutions to help it cease operating at an aggregated deficit of 400 billion NT and suffering from high to long-term pension liabilities. However, Wong is stressing that any reform of the Railways Administration will seek to put passengers' rights and the right of the railway's employees first. There have been calls to hike ticket prices and cut employees' pensions to make the administration more financially viable, but it has yet to be seen whether the government will take such steps as Wong appears to be seeking not to upset the public or the railway's employees themselves. Now, the newly appointed Transport Minister also says that he plans to introduce more smart technology to increase the efficiency of Taiwan's transportation networks as a whole and also curb accidents. Also this week, it was reported that the Taiwan Railways Administration's Deputy Director General Du Wei is expected to be named as the new head of the agency in an attempt to speed up the reforms mentioned by the new Transport Minister. Now, Premier Su Jing Chung has reportedly agreed to promote Du to head the administration. And, of course, the Taiwan Railways Administration, if you didn't know, has actually been without a Director General since Zhang Chengyuan retired in January of this year. So, Ross, new Transport Minister and talk of reform and talk of possibly higher ticket prices. Well, on the reform aspect, there's nothing you told us, despite your very lengthy backgrounder there, Gavin, about why the new head of the Railways Administration is is the individual who could best take forward all the things that you outlined. Because here's one thing that's really clear from what you just described and everything we know generally as the public uh, using or observing uh, the, the Taiwan Railways Administration. The internal people cannot achieve what you just described, because if they could, they would have done it already. So just promoting from within uh, or shuffling people around uh, either within the Taiwan Railways Administration or within the Ministry of Transportation and Communications, uh, that that's the the 
kind of typical approach here, right? We say, oh, somebody's been in the in the ministry, so we'll we'll just promote them to the to the next highest job when it opens up. You know, Lin Jialong was a little uh, unique because he came from outside the ministry. He didn't really have an on point background per se, uh, other than a lengthy career in public administration and a mayor. He did deal with transportation issues at the municipal level until the voters threw him out, and then he got promoted uh, in a, in a in a way by being made the minister. Uh, unfortunately, though, it, it's a bit hard to have confidence that that very uh, aggressive or ambitious agenda that you just outlined that's been described um, by the powers that be, whether it's the premier or ultimately, you know, this does all come back to one person, the, the president, uh, w- whether that agenda could be achieved by the new minister or the Taiwan Railways Administration. Hard to be optimistic. Uh, these are government uh, bureaucracies. They move very, very slowly. You know, there, there's a few precedents that we could look at by analogy, whether it's uh, the corporatization of Zhonghua Telecom or its separation from uh, being a, a, bureau, a part of the bureaucracy to standing alone, even though it's still owned by the gov- control, owned and controlled by the government. Uh, you know, China Airlines. I mean, there, there are a few examples like this. Uh, you know, these things just take a long time. And uh, as you mentioned, the ticket price is certainly one issue. And uh, given what the new minister, or the the incoming head of the administration, will probably say as well that uh, we want to do all these things, but we're going to solve the financial problems. We're going to solve the safety issues. We're going to change the culture. Oh, by the way, we don't want to anger the the staff, the retired staff, or the passengers. So we won't cut the pensions actually, or we won't raise the ticket prices. Ultimately, uh, like a lot of commuter rail or, or long distance rail around the world, including uh, in the United States, Amtrak. Uh, they're going to have to come back to the government for ever more uh, amounts of money. That's probably going to be the solution. So, Brian, do you think they should have hired from without instead of within? So I think it's a paradox because I think sometimes with these government bureaucracies, there's resistance when someone new from outside is appointed at the top, oftentimes political appointees or to give a politician that lost an election somewhere to go or to give a new face publicity. And so there's sometimes resentment. And sometimes new politicians named to these positions do come in with a mandate of change, but then there's resistance from below. And so that's always a challenge, I think, of, of just Taiwanese politics in the sense that this kind of phenomenon happens often. Uh, so with Lin and calls for him to resign to take responsibility, there's this culture of uh, taking responsibilities for things that occur under your watch even if you were not responsible for them for yourselves necessarily. And so, for example, after election losses, uh, presidents will resign as party chair, etc. And this is one example. Um, Lin, uh, Su Tenshang initially did not accept Lin's resignation and asked for him to stay on to manage things for a while, but there were increasing calls from the KMT during this time for Lin to take responsibility. And event- Lin eventually did leave. But then the question is that there has not been a actual uh, reshuffle, I mean, in the sense of that these are still about the same people in the Ministry of Transportation and Communications. And then regarding these calls to reform the uh, TRA, the Taiwan Railways Administration, this has been ongoing because there is this the pattern of accidents uh, since the 2018 accident uh, because of the safety systems on the train being uh, dis- uh, inactive because of needing to meet the schedule for the trains or this accident from the construction site in which just the the, tra- the truck slid in front of the train as it was coming out of, out of a tunnel. And so... Uh, there have been calls for the corporatization of making the TRA behave more like a corporation. Uh, this has been on the rise, particularly thin, since uh, 1997. Uh, there's been drastic manpower cuts in the TRA from the height of the 1970s, in which there was like over 20,000 personnel to around in the early 2000s, around 12,000. Um, and so this has been an ongoing debate, just will this actually endanger safety, uh, just corporatizing TRA, privatizing it. But the government oftentimes does take the view that this is something that will make 
TRA more efficient. But I, my, my question is, is, does that come at the cost of safety? Uh, just before the accident, uh, the station workers of TRA were threatening to strike uh, because of labor conditions, because of a new schedule that would make them work more and receive less pay. So, and Ross, yeah. I mean, obviously both of you mentioned the, making TRA more like corporate. I mean, there's much emphasis for a, a private sector person to come and take the job. Oh, heaven forbid that the TRA should have a budget to go out in the marketplace. They'll go to a, a headhunter and say, you know, we want to find the most qualified person in, in the marketplace, in the global marketplace. Give us the names of a candidate who's run a transportation network uh, nationally or in a big city somewhere in the United States or Europe or elsewhere in Asia. You know who does that? MTR in, in Hong Kong will do that. Singapore will do that. Uh, but Taiwan, I mean, that's just so rare, you know, unless it's a, a, a person with Taiwanese heritage, maybe, who's, who's been in the transportation industry. I mean, the idea of you know, bringing in uh, the most qualified individual to run TRA, uh, besides the fact that they would never pay the most qualified individual uh, market rate salary, uh, there, there'd be a lot of people who would say that this kind of outsider just doesn't understand the culture within uh, the, the, the TRA. And that really is the problem. It's the culture. You know, Brian talked about you know, the staff being a bit a bit grumpy because they have to work longer hours uh, or there's been a reduction in staff. They don't hire people when, when people retire or depart. Uh, there is no evidence that this contributes to the safety problems. In fact, the preponderance of the evidence is is more along the lines of uh, it's a cultural problem, it's a lack of a safety culture. We talk about that every time there's a, a rail, a road, or an air accident uh, here in Taiwan, that, that there is a cultural problem. Uh, here it happened to be not on the rail itself, but at the adjoining construction site. Uh, so uh, uh, with all due respect to my young socialist friend, Brian, I'm not going to buy into the notion that we, we need to save the workers or that... You know, um, it's, but it's, it's, does, it does make things more dangerous when workers are made to work more, because then that contributes to the possibility of human error. And so, for example, the 2018 Hualien uh, crash had the, the cause of it, just the fact that the uh, driver was ordered to dismantle, uh, to turn off the safe equipment to meet the schedule. Uh, so that's, again, just demanding to meet schedule, cost-cutting, uh, rushing to fix things. In the construction site accident that took place, for example, this uh, was because there should not have been work taking place on a weekend. There are questions about why this contractor was awarded the contract but when there's a history of labor violations. But one suspects that cost-cutting also has to do with it, that uh, companies that can have deliver for the lowest amount of money are given the contract in spite of a history of violations, and they're made to work on these schedules. And so work goes over the weekend despite the danger of, if, of high rail traffic. No, the, the, the issue there is it's not it's not that the, the, the work was going on the weekend and the poor workers worked on the weekend. The issue really is TRA failure to inspect construction sites along, along mm, its That's rail. also it's, a, a cost-cutting issue. Uh, okay. That doesn't happen if it was cost-cutting. But let me put this to you, Brian. Of course, if, if TRA or the government did decide to hire from the private sector from overseas, and the, the fact that the seeming refusal to do that seems to fly in the face of their big let's introduce new talent to Taiwan... Yeah, that's right. I think uh, Ross is right on that point. That there is probably a there will probably be a refusal to hire someone from outside unless they're of Taiwanese background, and then they could claim to be uh, have uh, to to be able to integrate more smoothly into this. I think there already are issues in which you know just there's clashes between the bureaucracy and, as I mentioned, these kind of political appointees. And this would just probably be accentuated further with someone that is not Taiwanese, for example. And so that's, that's I don't think the government would actually do that. So but, I think that's yeah. But that seems to run against the government's yeah. Let, it does. Let, it let's does. bring talent in if yeah, they want talent. Right. Yeah. For a company to be run properly by a professional mm. who's run 
yeah. transportation offices before. Surely they should be looking at that talent mm. who their lower people could learn from in the future. Yeah, I mean, if the priority of the government is actually to uh, push t- the TRA to behave more like a corporation, then it's a question, why don't they look at other models of, for example, places that have actually uh, corporatized or privatized? I mean, for example, Japan is, is one actually example, the J- uh, Japanese National Railway. Um, but then then you're asking the same people that have not really kind of achieved the corporatization to kind of continue doing that. And so the government is asking the same people to do thing, things that they have not succeeded in doing, actually. So it's puzzling to me. And it's a constant wheel going round and round and round. Sort of like a train wheel, Ross, there. Anyway, we'll move on from that. Now we had, well, of course, there was more talk of Taiwan in the Washington, D.C. this week as U.S. representatives in both the Republican and Democrat parties introduced the Taiwan International Solidarity Act on Monday here in Taiwan, saying it would help step up U.S. efforts to counter Beijing's growing attempts to isolate Taiwan from international organisations. Apparently, the bill is aimed at amending 2019's Taipei Act that was enacted in March of last year. Now, the draft Taiwan International Solidarity Act stipulates that the U.S. opposes any initiative that seeks to change Taiwan's status without the consent of the island's people. It also rejects Beijing's attempt to claim that Taiwan is in fact part of China. Meanwhile, a draft bill seeking to boost the US's capability to counter China's aggression on the international stage, including such actions against Taiwan, well that cleared the US Senate Foreign Relations Committee on Thursday morning here in Taiwan time, titled the Strategic Competition Act of 2021. The draft bill calls for the United States to reassert its leadership within international organisations and other multilateral arenas and to bolster its diplomatic plans to address the challenges posed by Beijing. Now, it has specific Taiwan items in it, those being that there should be no restrictions on American officials' interaction with their Taiwanese counterparts, that the US State Department and other government organisations should engage with the Taiwanese government on the same basis and using the same, well, the same protocols as it does with other foreign governments. And it goes on to reiterate that the US fully supports Taiwan's meaningful participation in the United Nations system and other global organisations. So, Brian, this sounds like deja vu. And we've got a double back whammy of deja vu this week. Yeah, that's right. So it does actually seem like the the same pattern that we've seen. And so I think particularly with the Taiwan Solidarity Act, it does seem just like a renewed version of the Taipei Act. And so there's a claim that's an expanded version, that there's uh, new developments and that this is something new. But I actually think what it more really is, is just reconfirming under the Biden administration that this still holds when the Taipei Act was passed under the Trump administration with a different composition of Congress and so forth. And so I think this is just kind of renewing this, uh, showing to China that this still holds, uh, doesn't actually mean nothing new. Um, with regards to the uh, Strategic Competition Act, a lot of it doesn't really surprise, for example. I think uh, the U.S. also advocates, as part of that, uh, boosting aid to Latin America and Africa to compete, I think, with Chinese efforts to grow influence in the region. Uh, also emphasizing innovation just to develop 5G networks because there's concern about the use of Chinese technologies, uh, particularly Huawei. Uh, with regards to Taiwan, I mean, there's some contention about that. There's the removal, I believe, of provisions that would have actually upgraded the, ti- the, the, the title by which the head of AIT is referred to from director to representative. This is most semantics, I think, but another design uh, marginally to China that of strengthening U.S.-Taiwan ties. Um, but it's also just not surprising in an age of uh, the U.S.-China trade war in which uh, there's also increasing geopolitical tensions. That was one would see something like this, a measure to um, you know, just uh, make measures to counteract that. It's unsurprising that China has uh, reacted badly to this, but I don't think that should be of uh, anything unexpected. 
It would be nice if the uh, esteemed members of the U.S. Congress just dumped all these things into a single bill once a year. You wouldn't have to talk about it you know, so often on your show, Gavin. <laughs> uh, they, they could shorten the name or they want to throw it all into one long name and then we could have like the Taiwan Taipei. We love you. Solidarity. Let's do more for you. Uh, we'll do more next year. Uh, act. Uh, but uh, this is, as, as both of you have already said, it, you know, it just seems to be more of the same. It's treating Taiwan in a somewhat unique way than other uh, countries with which the United States does maintain formal diplomatic relations, uh, some would say in a positive way. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe Taiwan uh, shouldn't be treated with such, you know, kind of, uh, to use a, an American uh, phrase, kid gloves, uh, and, and not be the subject of such special legislation. Uh, but uh, Taiwan has its friends in Congress, and uh, they like to do this, and they're, they're you know, there, there's uh, little reason to oppose it or really question it. You know, as long as you say it's Taiwan, uh, you know, people are going to support this kind of legislation. But uh, we know from the past examples, and Brian mentioned one of them, uh, uh, there's other uh, legislation that's been passed in, in recent years. So a lot of this is still subject to the decisions of the executive branch. Uh, so whether it's mandating uh, interaction uh, at a certain level or frequency or mandating various kinds of reporting about uh, Taiwan's military or the Chinese threat to Taiwan or uh, participation or U.S. efforts to help Taiwan's participation in international organizations. We know that the State Department and, and the Defense Department and other agencies are not necessarily going to follow suit because that's simply how uh, governance, government works in the United States, that a lot of these decisions are within the executive branch. And then, frankly, some of these things are just outside the control of the United States anyway, such as participation in international organizations. And uh, it remains to be seen what the Biden administration wants to do uh, in that regard, because frankly, the Trump administration, despite its good intentions, uh, also uh, was not able to get Taiwan into the World Health Assembly last May, uh, as well as uh, you know, APEC or Taiwan thought, because it's online, maybe President Tsai uh, could participate in the leaders meeting. That didn't happen either. So uh, you know, we'll see uh, lots of press releases from members of Congress and uh, nice statements from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs here in Taiwan. Uh, but ultimately, do these things uh, change much here on the ground in Taiwan? I, you know, I think Brian uh, indicated, and I, I would agree with him, you know, that's nah, kind of, it's nice, but you know, not really a big deal. I can't see them lumping these together, though, Ross, because, of course, the U.S. got in trouble recently in recent years lumping the arms sales together. So if they lump all the Taiwan acts together, Brian, that could lead to some problems. Yeah, I think also the Strategic Competition Act is uh, more than just Taiwan, so the broader uh, issues of China. So I guess it, it does sort of make sense. But you could just include Taiwan within that, too. So it's the other argument. Anyway, turning to local politics now, and the Guomingdang this past Sunday launched its referendum promotion campaign as it seeks to raise public awareness about its referendum proposals that could be put to the vote this August. Now, the KMT has, of course, submitted two referendum proposals to the Central Election Commission for review. One opposes the government's decision to open Taiwan's market to US port products containing ractopamine, while the other is a proposal that would allow referendums to be held in conjunction with major local elections. Now, according to KMT Chairman Johnny Jung, his party is raising the two proposals because the DPP pushed through the policies despite widespread public opposition to the moves. And Jiang says the party is holding promotional events to ensure that both referendums see a high turnout rate. He did stress high turnout rate. And he also says that party members are being asked to encourage the public to cast their ballots in favour of the KMT initiatives come August. Now, if the referendum proposals do pass the Central Election Commission's review process, they could be 
put to the vote on August the 28th. Now, the DPP has said it will not initiate any referendum proposals of its own in response to the KMT's ones, and DPP spokeswoman Shea Pei Fan said that as the ruling party, the DPP has the responsibility of taking the referendum votes as an opportunity to communicate with the people and explain the government's stance. So, Ross, the KMT hitting the road to promote its referendums because apparently the majority of the public opposed the policies that the government put forward. Well, these two issues, uh, I think it's fair to say the public is not eager to eat uh, U.S. pork with racked dopamine. <laughs> no one's walking around saying, <laughs> give me the, the fried pork patty with racked dopamine. I don't want the one without racked dopamine. I want the racked dopamine one. Uh, <laughs> no one's saying that, right? I, 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 uh, my favorite fast food restaurants don't have the racked dopamine burger or bacon uh, breakfast sandwich on the menu either. Uh, so uh, if given a choice, uh, the, I think the public would say, sure, I, uh, I don't want racked dopamine. It's kind of like asking, like, do you want more air pollution or less air pollution? Of course, people are going to say, I don't want it. Uh, whether that translates into uh, enough people coming out to vote, you know, that, who knows? Uh, changing the, the timing uh, uh, of the the date when, when referendums were held. Look, we, we know why that was done. That was in response to the referendums that were approved uh, in 2018 um, on, on the local election day, many of which uh, were not uh, consistent with government policies. The government was unhappy. So they changed the date uh, to make it uh, you know, less likely that unfavorable referendums would be passed by the public because they're putting on this you know, random date in August. It's hot in August. There could be typhoons. Uh, it could be rainy. Uh, you know, turnout might be low. Uh, on the other hand, if it was a referendum that the government uh, is supporting, uh, which apparently they're deciding not to do this time or not to have a counter-referendum, uh, then they would activate their machinery, their mobilization machinery, to get as many people to come out in August to vote against it. But when they changed the referendum law uh, to move the date off of uh, the local election day to this, uh, again, I'll call it the random date in August, uh, there wasn't a lot of education for the public on that one. So with, with all due respect to, to Ms. Xie, spokeswoman Xie Peifun of the DPP, I mean, we got to be frank here. That There wasn't a lot of discussion or buy-in from the public on that. And that was done specifically for uh, the DPP's political expediency. Again, though, is that going to translate into people coming out to vote for it uh, in August? And uh, frankly, the Gomindang being the 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 mover of this referendum is not really a good selling point on the pub- for the public either, simply because the Gomindang is just not very popular. So uh, it's kind of hard to see uh, Johnny Chang or, or the very few Gomindang legislators being uh, uh, good salespeople for this. It actually would take a broader a uh, grouping of, of NGOs, uh, good governance organizations, for example, uh, to also uh, to take a public view on this and say, yeah, actually, it was a better idea to have this on the same date with the local election. You know, having it on this kind of odd date in August uh, is just just not a good way to do it. Doesn't really contribute to, to public participation. But I'll throw it over to Brian to comment on whether or not a broader uh, NGO community I th- might I th- want to I participate. Think, I think, I think, Russ, the first thing we have to do is we have to apologize to every 
everyone whose birthday falls on August the 28th because they oh. might not find it an odd day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, so interesting because I see there are a number of reference issues besides these two. Uh, there's also the one on the uh, Datan, the uh, liquid ni- liquefied natural gas terminal, and there's also the issue on nuclear reactor number four. Um, so when one looks at the overall uh, referendums, like these are two that the KMT has taken a stance against the, the liquefied natural gas terminal uh, is for reactor four, is against reactopamine pork, is pushing for changes to the uh, date of the referendum so it's on the same day of elections or something like that. Um, these are actually a lot of issues in which the DPP and the KMT have traded positions. Uh, historically, I mean, during the Ma administration, the KMT was pushing for reactopamine pork imports to be allowed to Taiwan, uh, but now it's out of office. It's the DPP that's pushing for it now in the hopes of securing a trade deal with the U.S. Uh, so then on the issue of the Datan uh, liquefied natural gas terminal, originally this was proposed by the KMT, but then now that the DPP is in power, they're pushing for it and the KMT is opposing it for it, citing the environmental cost. The nuclear issue they have not traded positions on, but it's the only one, because actually with the referendum stuff, historically it was the DPP that pushed for changes to the Referendum Act to lower the benchmarks and needed to hold a referendum. But then after the results of the 2018 election, this was not, as you said, politically expedient to the DPP, and therefore it tries to push for uh, a change in the date so that the KMT cannot leverage on this for the sake of elections. I, I, this is like, it's funny because I think between all these issues, this is the one which will get the least amount of attention. It's not the one that people really care about because people are not really very focused on these uh, intricacies of electoral politics. Uh, I, I find it very funny in the sense that this is a referendum on referendums. Uh, I think people should call it the referendum referendum or the meta referendum, <laughs> but <laughs> it's not really going to excite people in that way. And so it's actually, uh, it's, I don't think the KMT will get as far regarding this. Um, but then it's interesting because they're actually producing some of the DPP's former rhetoric. The DPP called the referendum act the bird cage referendum act. The KMT is calling it now the iron cage referendum act. Yeah, maybe there should be a referendum on whether political parties should have referendums that seem to be hypocritical to something they last had a <laughs> referendum about. But fair, course- fair point, Gavin, but, but that also goes back to something that, that I want to emphasize and, and I want to be consistent because I've said it on your show before, which is in a country as small as Taiwan uh, where legislators have an easy ability to interact with the public, why can't these issues be decided in the legislature. That, that's really where a lot of these issues should be decided, and legislators should be close to the voters, or they should get voted out in the next election. Uh, but but the, you know, the referendum law, you know, championed by the DPP, as we've been discussing, uh, has, has really opened up the possibility for all sorts of issues to be voted in referendums. Some people thought, oh, that's so nice. We could have more democracy. Uh, but again, you know, why can't these things just be decided by the elected legislators? And if someone thinks that they're not enough ele- elected legislators, you know, they could up the number. I'm not a big fan of that either because it's gone up and down uh, already. Uh, but, but if need be, fine, increase it to 125 or 150. Uh, but the population isn't increasing, so there isn't really a strong case for that. Uh, but uh, talk to the constituents and vote on this stuff. Uh, you know, the, the, these, these issues, you know, Brian mentioned a, a few of them that are g- probably going to be uh, on referendums this summer, uh, and the ones in 2018, these really should properly be subject to, to vote uh, They should by the legislators and, and not be referenced. Because, and the reason why I did bring this up again is look at the, the problems it's causing. You know, this this frankly, wasteful debate about moving the date, right, uh, off of the local election day to this August date. Now we're going to spend a lot of public resources arguing over switching it back. Uh, that, that's, that really is a big waste of time or resources. And of course, Brian, do you see August the 28th being a big turnout day or do you see turnout being moderate? 
No, I think no. it depends on the conditions. I think uh, particularly it's, it's hard to predict, actually, because uh, it could be depending on the weather. I mean, if there's a typhoon, if it rains, etc. And so I think that's part of the rationale for, for changing the date. Then, of course, there could be another referendum about if a referendum day falls on a typhoon day, oh, if they do, should we do it? Do we do we do it again another day? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's a funny thing about referendums—you can have referendums on things that you voted on already and reverse the course of it. And should everyone own a parrot? There we go. That's, that's an idea of a referendum idea. there, basically. <laughs> anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we'll continue with local political party news. And Taipei Mayor and Taiwan People's Party Chairman Ke Wen-je says that he doesn't want to see his party become bogged down in the debate over pro-independence or pro-unification. Now, speaking at a two-day camp for party members, Ke said the TPP should instead seek to find an alternative centrepiece issue different from those of the pan-blue or pan-green camps. Now, while we've all heard Mr Kerr and how he wants to be between the blue and the green camps spiel before it did prove rather ironic on Tuesday of this week after he appeared in a video uploaded to a Facebook page which was titled Taiwanese Uncle Kerwin Jur as there he espoused his belief that the names of roads and streets in Taipei should better reflect what he termed as the Taiwanese spirit and he questioned why many of them are in fact named after places in China. Now according to Kerr street names such as Ningxia, Beiping, Tianjin and Zhang and make walking along them disconcerting as they are names of provinces or cities in China. So, Ross, when you walk down Nanjing East Road, for example, do you become disconcerted about where you are? Yeah, but for a variety of reasons outside of only the street <laughs> names. Uh, it's also the sections, and the, the lanes and the alleys. You know, why, why do we even have these names? Uh, maybe maybe President, former President, former Mayor Ma was right. You know, he had his... Uh, numbered uh, system. I remember when he pushed the system to change the at least the main avenues and boulevards to First Avenue and First Boulevard. You know, that was a total flop. Uh, anyway, uh, if if the public supports this, uh, you know, the time has probably come. You know, there'll probably be a lot of complaints about uh, how difficult it is for industry to adapt and you know. Correspondence from overseas will get lost by the mail or something like that. Uh, but uh, it seems like a normal thing to do uh, as part of transitional justice anyway, uh, especially so many decades on from when the national government arrived in Taipei. Uh, but uh, with his tenure kind of ending soon uh, and really not a lot of support uh, or sufficient support in the city council for this, I think it's pretty unlikely that he'll get this one done. And I think two words in that comment by you, Ross, transitional justice, Brian. There's two words, which means that probably lots of people will vote against changing the road names. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, there'll be resistance from people to that idea. I mean, it's been proposed in the past, I mean, particularly under Chen Shui-bian with his various name changes. And so I think then, uh, particularly at a time in which the KMT and many members of the Pan Blue camp, ranging from the deep green, uh, blues to the light blues, feel the ROC identities under attack, uh, this would something uh, provoke them. And so I think this reflects Ko's dilemma and the Taiwan People Party's dilemma as well. Just It wants to have its cake and eat it too. So it's trying to maintain this balancing act, claiming that's beyond blue and green. Uh, many of its legislators do have blue rap grounds. Uh, for example, Ann Kao, who is formerly Terry Go's assistant. Uh, then there is also Lai Xiangling, the, uh, the uh, labor activist with pro-inflation leanings. Uh, but then Cho will just, for example, flip-flop between. Uh, he's claiming this now regarding the name changes. Just before, he was saying that we're all one family on both sides of the Taiwan Straits, that we share a common destiny 
misogyny. Uh, he was emphasizing that he's the descendant of a white terror victim and then praising Jiang Jingkuo on the other hand. And so this is, is one of the issues, actually. And so he is trying to have his cake and eat it. But independence versus unification is the, the name of the game, I think, in Taiwanese politics. This is a major split in Taiwanese politics historically, and that has not changed. There have been various attempts to push beyond that or to go beyond that, uh, including the New Power Party um, or the Social Democratic Party, these other third parties that tried to shift the discourse, uh, try to reframe things in terms of left versus right. That didn't really work as one saw an implosion of the New Power Party before uh, the presidential elections because of this question of do you endorse the DPP or not. And so this same issue will face the TPP. And particularly, the question, uh, the other question facing the party is that can it move beyond the identity of being a party of Ko Wenzhe, its leader and founder? Uh, can it move beyond that? And so as the party is sort of you know coming of age in some sense, it's facing these issues. And I don't think that it'll actually be able to get beyond independence reunification. This is, again, the name of the game. So you have to oftentimes say that you're trying to get beyond this, but then you're actually still playing the game. And I think that's, that's, that's how the, the new game works. You say you're not doing this, but you actually are. Put it to a referendum. Shut up. (laughs) Shut up, Ross. But, I mean, seriously, going back to the names, Ross, I mean, what what do you think they could rename the streets? Uh, Assuming you're not going to use numbers, um, then there's plenty of options uh, related to Taipei. Uh, Maybe not an endless number of options, but uh, trees or other Mm. things that people associate with Taipei, uh, I'm sure the public could come up with a few names. Uh, you, you say don't have a referendum, but uh, typically in Taiwan, these things are put out to some kind of uh, you know, public polling, uh, you know, an online polling. And we know how much uh, government agencies at the local as well as the central level, they love to do things by an online online poll. And, and also- Prizes. Yeah, prizes. You give, give, give yeah, well, um, you know, yeah. dolls and things like that, you know, a Coenja doll away as well. Uh, but, but also, uh, the name, you know, famous people who have contributed to to Taipei's development um, would also be a good a good thing to use. Yeah, on that point, I think Ko Wenzhou would definitely name a street or someplace after Jiang Weishui, the uh, the founder of the original Taiwan People's Party that in back in, in the day during the Japanese colonial period, who has the same birthday as Ko and the Party Congress, which you know his party shares the same name as Chang's Historic Party, was also on Ko's birthday. So he would definitely name something after that just for the sake of his own uh, gratification. I think there'll be no Ross Feingold Avenue though. No. Thankfully, thankfully. Anyway, moving to something not political, or semi-political, I guess, a group of food delivery drivers this week announced that they're seeking to form a labour union to demand fair pay. Now, the group held a press conference outside the Ministry of Labour offices in Taipei on Tuesday, calling for Food Panda and Uber Eats drivers to sign up for the proposed National Delivery Industrial Union, the ND. IU. There you go. It sounds quite good when you say it like that. Now, the group's spokesperson, Su Bo Hao, said the establishment of a union is due to both Food Panda and Uber Eats regularly modifying their rules to calculate delivery service fees, often without any communications with the delivery drivers themselves. Now, he also said that if formed, the Labour union will take to the steps and lobby the Ministry of Labour and lawmakers to consider a designated legislation on food deliveries and food deliverers, I should say, to protect the drivers' rights. Now, apparently, there's 88,000 food delivery drivers in Taiwan at the end of last year, and apparently this union could be created within two months, Brian. 
That's right. Um, so the, there are various local uh, unions for food delivery services, but the proposal is to create a national union. And so in this sense, a national union would be able to more bring the uh, food delivery platforms to the table to negotiate because it does operate on a national scale. Uh, the criticism is that Food Panda and Uber Eats are not transparent about uh, the uh, salary calculation and that they arbitrarily change the formulas by which salaries are calculated. So particularly criticisms were made after new changes uh, were implemented that cut the, 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 the money that delivery workers were taking home by 10% to 30%. And so, for example, uh, there was a, a worker that cited that he was making 9,600 on 110 deliveries previously, but then after the changes were made, he was making 9,000 on 164 deliveries. And so then the other criticism is that this has increased the amount of accidents that takes place. Uh, that, that previously there was, there was a filing for accident compensation is an average of 1.4 per month in, in the, in the uh, greater Taichung area, but then immediately after the changes were increased, that there's already been four accidents in about the 22 days since the chains were implemented. So this is pushing for uh, negotiating with the, the food delivery services. There's often the criticism that the quote-unquote gig economy is a way to erode at worker rights uh, while claiming this allowing for flexibility, and that these companies, that because of they're using these kind of app platforms, that there's there's oftentimes no negotiating with them. At the same time, I, I expect the Uber Eats and Food Panda to claim that this is the new innovation that Taiwan needs to get on board, otherwise it will be left behind, and to pressure the government in that sense. And the government oftentimes does claim that the specific of different industries require different labor conditions. So I think this will be a kind of familiar game of push and pull. I think the push, though, is going to be uh, ultimately that the, the organizers will be successful if they really make the effort. Right? That, mm. that remains to be seen. Um, but then the politicians will jump on board. Right? So uh, just like taxi drivers, farmers, get a lot of sympathy from politicians, even if the economics are not necessarily, or the, lo the logic is not necessarily on, on the side of those constituencies. They, they do get a lot of sympathy. Uh, so if these uh, people don't just come across as a small group within the, the 88,000 nationally, but they, they pool their resources and they really get out there and get a lot of uh, the, the delivery people to support this effort. I, I th again, I think the politicians uh, w will come on board, and then we actually, uh, you know, it's very likely we would see this union. And uh, of course, the the platforms will fight it, uh, but ultimately, you know, just like the regulation that uh, changed Uber's business model uh, for, for the higher car business, uh, it, it might just you know, be something they'll have to deal with, and the uh, consumers who use these platforms will probably have to pay a little bit more money because the cost will get passed along um, to to the consumers. If if the delivery people get get higher pay, uh, or the the platforms have to spend more on insurance and, you know, against uh, accidents, for example, uh, again, all those costs will be passed along to the consumers. So, Brian, do you think people would stop using Food Panda or Uber Eats if the prices did go up? Um, it's a good question because it is actually uh, more expensive than just going out eating. And so, actually, that it is actually very easy to just go out and get food in Taiwan. So, food delivery services just raise a level of convenience, but then there's higher pay. Um, so, I think this is what the company will, the companies will leverage on as well, saying that well, this will make things more expensive. Like, do you really want this to happen? I think also then there's the, uh, I mean, Patricia, when Uber tried to enter the Taiwanese market, there's resistance from taxicab unions, and so it might frame the issue in a similar way that this is resistance from uh, these these union groups that want to go to an older model, whereas this is the new innovative model of future that makes things more convenient for people. And so I think one will see this rhetoric. Um, but it is a question, will this actually be able to work? Um, they have 200 
members now, forming a union is not difficult, but then it actually become a national union. I mean, there are many places in which uh, food delivery workers do congregate. You do see a line of them just outside of restaurants. But will they actually want to join this union? I mean, I think it's also not impossible that uh, companies will try to de-insensitivize uh, workers from joining these unions through some means. And so I think that's also a question. And of course, what do you think there, Russell? Do you think the food delivery drivers will want to join a national union or do you think they'll simply want to do their jobs and get paid? That's one of the, the unknowns in this, simply because uh, uh, some of these you know, delivery people might make a, a full-time job or a, a career sort of do this long-term, and some of them might just be young and doing this part-time and uh, something they do while they're in school or in between jobs. So the incentive for some of the individuals might not be there to um, enthusiastically support this effort, especially if they start to get concerned that uh, – there's going to be a battle with the companies or, or some other negative impact on their day-to-day uh, job. Uh, that's why I said it remains to be seen you know, what kind of enthusiasm level the, these initial organizers uh, could drum up. You know, 200 might be a nice start. I, actually, I'd say that doesn't really meet the threshold I had in mind for, for an enthusiastic, successful effort. It, it's not difficult uh, to spread the message. As Brian said, you, you, can, you can see where the drivers are congregating, uh, whether on break or outside of uh, more popular restaurants where they're picking up food. We are talking about something that is is part of the gig economy, so at its very nature, it's easy to send messages around and mm. spread the, the word about the proposed union. Uh, so 200 does seem like a, a relatively modest start. Uh, so again, it, it's really up to their their desire. But people who are doing this part time or just you know because it's something they do in school, they're they're not going to be very incentivized or enthused to to help organize or sustain this effort. So. Remains to be seen, but but again, I'll stick with my forecast that if there really is a, a a pool of enthusiasm, that I think the legislators and the government will jump on board. And of course, Brian, we talked about the part-time food delivery drivers, the young students. Mm. Do you think it becomes if it goes under a national union, these people could be pushed out of the job because it would become more of a part of full-time employment gig for people. Yeah, that's possible. Uh, I think there is actually a wave of, uh, particularly a lot of labor protests in the past few years have been led by young people um, in a way that actually is kind of interesting because these are not traditional labor unions actually leading these uh, labor demonstrations. For example, uh, unionization drives in industries that have not been unionized in the transportation industry, uh, such as the China Airlines strike um, or the uh, protests against the Labor Standards Act. So there actually is, that that actually does exist, uh, I think, among students. Uh, there are also more and more kind of uh, labor-oriented student groups forming on campuses, and that's kind of a trend in terms of, I think, civil society. So I think I think it really remains to be seen. But I think uh, in terms of these uh, larger trends, I mean, it's also this has also happened in other parts of the world where food delivery workers try to unionize, and, and the, the company usually does try to prevent them from doing so, um, sometimes using the app or just their tracking of, of different workers. And, you know, Uber has come into criticism, for example, uh, regarding how it acts, for example, just, you know, using a different version of its app to fool, for example, police, actually, in New York City that were trying to monitor uh, Uber drivers. And so that it, 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 it's a question, actually. Anyway, before we go this week, Taiwan's branches of the Chinese-owned Hai Di Lao Hot Pot Restaurant made the front page of the Apple Daily this week with a report voicing alarm about the rather large number of CCTV cameras inside them and concerns that this could be some ploy to bring China's social credit program to Taiwan. The report there was based on a similar story that appeared in the Sunday Guardian Live website that focused on Hai Di Lao's Vancouver branch. And that report cited a manager with the branch as confirming that over 60 surveillance cameras had been installed in the restaurant at the request of 
Heidi Lau Corporation in China as part of the country's social credit system. Now, the manager said the Vancouver location has 30 tables and two cameras assigned. Well, there's two cameras at each table. Needless to say, that led to much debate here in Taiwan as to whether the Heidi Lau branches here are also watching people eat their hot pot and sending the footage back to their masters in Beijing. Brian. Yeah, so this is an amusing story to me because I think it conflates a lot of different things. I mean, social credit is not you know, omnipresent in China. It's many interlocking systems that do not actually cohere together. Uh, it's not become this Orwellian system, yet maybe there are moves towards that, but it just it does actually resemble something more like a credit score. Um, there is monitoring uh, using surveillance, facial identification technology. Uh, there's digital tracking that takes place in China, but these are not always integrated systems, and you know it hasn't gone to that level point yet. A lot of this stuff could have been done with lower tech technology already. And so there's a going concern about uh, China's uh, just invasion of privacy and attempts to expand influence overseas, uh, but I think it's also conflating a lot of different things. For example, the, the concern about Chinese-produced security cameras. It is actually true, according to technical experts that I've spoken to, that, for example, Hikvision cameras do route footage through a server in Shenzhen. Um, that is concerning. But this is not the same thing as the social credit system. And I'm also I'm also just like, Beijing, why start with the hot pot to roll out social credit <laughs> you know if you're going to roll this like techno leviathan and just watch everybody like why why start with a hot pot so then it's interesting too that actually uh the taiwan media picked up on the story based on this very confused canadian report i think one sees a lot of uh, very sensationalist english language reporting on the uh, uh the the social credit system in china and then taiwanese media will pick that up because of the fear of china uh, there's a disturbing trend of that because taiwan should actually have greater awareness of what actually goes on in china it's closer people read the language and so forth but even when it comes to for example chinese information campaigns, even government bureaus are primarily citing English language reports and not PLA sources. And so this is actually kind of concerning to me. It's not a surprise, Brian, that they would pick hot pot because you know, hot <laughs> pot. Hot, twice, actually. hot pot is a it's a meal that kind of lends itself to a bit of a mess. You know, people are, are putting their chopsticks in the pot, and you know, food is kind of flying everywhere. The the smoke is flying everywhere. Food might jump out while it's while it's boiling, especially if, if you know, some of the, the the animals are still alive. I guess. <laughs> uh, so so there, there's a lot of possibilities for things could go wrong when people eat hot pot. I mean, and you know, like at the end of the meal in a hot pot. Uh, you know, when you have a group of people eating hot pot, I mean, there's stuff all over the table, right? There's bones and, 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 and dirty napkins and stuff. The table's all wet. So, I mean, yeah, I suppose if you want to monitor, you know, people's uh, eating habits uh, for uh, purposes of social credit and deducting points if someone's not, you know, showing like, you know, the, the mismannered school of eating etiquette, uh, you know, there could be some logic to, <laughs> to using hot pot as opposed to something with just a, a simple fork and a knife or a, a hamburger, which you could just munch using your your fingers you don't necessarily generate a lot of mess that way uh so uh, not surprised but uh, maybe this is a bit of an overreaction there's actually a core issue here that it does relate to some of the other topics we were discussing on the show such as renaming uh, the streets and uh, other identity issues uh why is a restaurant chain from China popular in Taiwan? I mean, people are still prioritizing their tummies <laughs> over identification issues. You'd think that, that you know, there'd just be a reflexive dislike for, for uh, a brand from China. Uh, but apparently uh, people do like the food, and that's why Heidi Lao's expanded all over the world, including here in Taiwan. Have you been to one, Brian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, how was it? I think, uh, yeah, it's all right. I think did, the... did you give them a wave? 
Um, I, I, I did not think about what I was being watched by Xi Jinping at the moment. What's but, your table uh, clean? You were very careful. No, I'm, I'm not actually it. great with hot pot. Like, I make a mess. Um, uh, exactly. Well, see, that's yeah. why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why they need the cameras. <laughs> I, I do wonder, yeah, just why. What is China, China gain from this? Like, yeah, okay, now you know the eating habits of so and so personalities. Like, are you going to use this to blackmail them? We always talk about the question of, you know, governments getting incriminating uh, tapes of, you know, people doing bad things. Hot pot, you know, that's what they do. That's how they blackmail people going forward. I think, okay, yeah, I think it's a good idea, actually. When I first, actually, when I saw the Apple Daily, I looked at the photo first. I didn't uh-huh. bother reading it. I just looked at the photo and said, wow, there's a lot of cameras in that hot pot restaurant. Mm. I thought, do, do hot pot restaurants have a problem with people nicking cutlery? Mm. Oh. That was my reaction, Ross, to that. makes that. sense. Well, That'd not just the cutlery more. or you know, the, the condiments as well, uh, but uh, there's also the issue of wasting food. Maybe they're looking, again, you know, mm-hmm. if you wanted to take a social yeah. credit system to its extreme, yeah, totally, you, know, totally. you, you might want to deduct points for people who waste food. And there is a lot of wasted food at a hot pot meal, unfortunately. Uh, but again, we don't we don't have any evidence yet that that's the purpose of, of the cameras uh, in the Taipei mm-hmm. location or that the footage is being sent to China. And, and uh, how many people in Taiwan are participants uh, in China's social credit system anyway. I mean, you'd have to be living there mm. or spending a lot of time there. And, Absolutely. Uh, and, 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 just, and it's, yeah. you know, to be relevant. So, you know, the three of us, if we went there, I mean, we're not participants in the social credit system. So, you know, we, I suppose we could we could make a mess at the hot pot restaurant and, and wave at the camera. And uh, as uh, you said, uh, Gavin, Nick, uh, the, the cutlery. But Brian, of course, have you thought of taking a few friends dressed as a certain Winnie the Pooh? Oh, just to check yeah. on that one, yeah. just to see what happens. I, I think that'd probably be bad for my uh, social credit score. Just showing up. Uh, in, How would you get the food protest. into the costume? Well, I'm, I'm sure Xi Jinping is watching, you know, all of these hot pot videos. Like, has a room, just all these TV screens with like around, you know, hot pot around the world, and just like since they're watching them. So, what yeah. about the local Chinese takeout restaurants oh, all true. over the world? Yeah, that's that's uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but was the hot pot any good? That's the question I have. Was the hot pot any good? Yeah, it was okay. I mean, it's a chain. Um, I think uh, a lot of it's particularly. I think uh, it is. It is possible to sell the Chinese flavor. Like that's a way to brand things in 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 Taiwan. I mean, I, I just ate like a Dongbei hot pot thing yesterday, so you know, Chinese flavored. That was, really? that was coincidence. Of yes, all people, oh, Brian. <laughs> just, I am you, so disappointed. You've just admitted this, Brian. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, we'll leave it there here on Taiwan this week. Before Brian says something else, that will get him in hot water. And I have, of course, been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Ross Feingold. Have a good weekend. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And we won't have a show next Friday as it's the Labor Day holiday. And while Ross may be toiling away in his office, well, it's a holiday for us workers. And needless to say, I'll be at home with my feet up. But please don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows in the meantime. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.